So how can we take this growing food waste stream to enable more farms, whether soil farms or indoor farms, and I'll tell you shortly why we focus on indoor or soilless farms, to be able to grow either less chemically laden food and or ideally, in my personal uh, opinion, organic certifiable food. Tania Pina is my guest on this episode of Inside Ideas, brought to you by 1.5 Media and Innovators Magazine. Tania received her BS in Business Information Technology from Virginia Tech and studied briefly at Columbia University's Earth Institute. She has seven years of experience in the financial services industry and 10 years as a professional in the sustainability industry. Her experience is related to food waste, food systems, and sustainability have fueled her passion to increase our community's resilience, prosperity, and knowledge to help us live more concise and conscious lives. Tania's pioneering business model has earned her a Huffington Post Millennial Impact Grant, the American Express Emerging Innovator Award, and a Miller Coors Urban Entrepreneur Grant, among many other honors. After studying environmental conservation and sustainability at Columbia University's Earth Institute and volunteering at various community urban farms, Tania launched Renubble with a mission to redefine waste within urban communities. Renubble quickly evolved into a social enterprise dedicated to changing wasteful habits around the world. Tania is a Sawana Certified Composting System Technical Associate, and her experience related to food waste systems and policy have fueled her passion to increase our community's uh, resilience, prosperity, and knowledge to help us live more conscious lives. Tania, it's so good to have you here on the podcast. Welcome. Thank you, Mark. Thanks for having me here with you. You're most welcome. And I could go on about Renubble, but I really want to hear it from you. And we'll discuss that as we go throughout the show on how, how it started in, in 2011. But really, I want to start out, and, and it's really due to the times that we're in, like I do with most of my guests. How have you weathered this absolutely crazy two years uh, and pro probably still carrying on some craziness of pandemics and mutations and Black Lives Matters and Asian racism and a crazy inauguration, uh, droughts and floods and forest fires and climate change and major things uh, in our industry going on around the food systems. And we've seen some awareness being raised through the UN Food Systems Summit and and many things going on with indigenous peoples and groups kind of raising awareness, good, bad, and ugly around food systems. I, I really wanna know, one, first, honestly, how did you and your family weather the storm? Were you okay? Did, did you make it through all right? And because you've been doing this a little while, because you've been focused in sustainability, you've been focused in, and uh, leaning towards the ag industry and nutrient film technologies or organic matter for uh, nutrients for plants, food that we grow. Um, 
has any of that proven to be a better model for life or giving you some resilience to weather this crazy time easier than the most and and proven or anything else bubbled to the surface where you've had some aha moments and said wow i didn't realize that this would come but i'm prepared or some learning lessons you could share with us yeah thanks thanks for checking in with that question um you know we're headquartered in new york city i'm calling from my apartment uh, as as I think with food systems, you know better than I, it's sometimes the resiliency of small numbers or perhaps more uh, disparate concentration of where production is happening and where cultivation is happening sometimes, regional food systems. Um, you can see that resilience allows, that, that smaller numbers can sometimes allow for more resilience and greater adaptation. And what I mean by that is, you know, thankfully I've never, um, Never, never had uh, COVID. Um, I've been a strong advocate for you know really, really making sure that I'm eating right uh, to allow for a strong immune system um, and try to do that with our team as well. But you know, just this week we had a COVID exposure, and so I, I mentioned the small numbers because it allowed us to be quite more resourceful and resilient when the capital markets, for example, tightened up. So we had a bank loan of $500,000 on February 27th of 2000, 2020, essentially. Uh, and that was the kind of holy grail of allowing us to really move forward with the company. Um, as a result, we had to completely revise and change our products, our manufacturing model. Um, and you know, I really give credit to the people that have chosen to work with with me and for us because they allowed us to be creative and more resourceful with the resources that we had. Um, so from a from a business perspective, it showed us that, you know, if we invested in our people um, and really put their their interest and their health and everything that allows them to to do well at home and for at the office. Um, there's without a question that they'll stay with you. We we were able to overcome what I felt, you know, a lot of businesses weren't able to be resilient on, on the financial side. Um, with regards to the work that we do, you know, COVID revealed a lot of vulnerabilities, not only on the supply chain side, but just also with food access and food production. And when you kind of look back at why I started Renewable, which I'll kind of start that a little bit, that, that journey. I, by tra technical training, am not an agriculturalist. I am not a botanist. I am not a plant pathologist. Um, a lot of what I've learned to date has been self-directed and been fortunate to be surrounded by advisors and a team do, that do have those degrees and technical training. Um, but the, the concept for renewable started back in 2011. I, I went to school for information technology. I worked in financial services for roughly seven to eight years. And it was the, the career that I had right before I went full time and started renewable, <clears throat> excuse me, that um, made me see that I wanted to be a part of something larger. So what that meant was I was a team leader at New York Cares. Um, and that meant on Saturdays from 8 a.m. until 3 p.m., I was advising a project that allowed us to go to the school in, in Harlem called Thurgood Marshall and help these kids prepare for SATs to the best of my ability. My immediate personal observation was realizing that these kids, based on what they're eating, is, is really having an impact to what I felt was 
the information that they're retaining, and their productivity. So, and that's directly tied to me seeing highly processed, not normally nutritionally dense food or fresh options. And I, I myself as a vegetarian know how critical nutritional availability and access really has for how often I get sick, how much energy I have, and how much longer of my days I'm able to sustain. Um, so I started with that observation and then coupled by the fact that I saw at that time, New York City was spending $77 million to export food waste to China, Pennsylvania, and Virginia. And knowing that that was only gonna compound, especially, and they're reporting now, that if the world po global population is to increase to 10 billion people by 2050, they estimate that 84% will be located near urban metropolitan areas. So how can we take this growing food waste stream to enable more farms, whether soil farms or indoor farms, and I'll tell you shortly why we focus on indoor or soilless farms, to be able to grow either less chemically laden food and or ideally, in my personal uh, opinion, organic certifiable food. And um, you know, looking at how we can kind of create this circular loop, um, there's, a, there's a concept, I forget by the, the theorist that uh, came up with the concept all, called urban metabolism, really evaluating from a systems perspective, all the resources and inputs that that city consumes, and then looking at ways to then minimize and ideally completely have a regenerative closed loop model so that the number of outputs as a result of the consumption and activities um, happening in that city is minimized as much as possible. So it's completely a, um, a reiterating the concept of resource efficiency. And so that's really what started it. I didn't go full-time on Renewable until 2015. So before then I was hustling a whole lot of consulting gigs, dog walking on the side, just really trying to figure out what was Renewable at its core and what the long-term, you know, kind of evolution or potential could be. By, by far, you know, it has quite evolved from its initial business model, but ultimately as we stand today, we're still a company that focuses on unrecoverable vegetative waste from food manufacturers, distributors, and processors, and, and are focused on using that as a mechanism to displace the use of mineral salts in our food systems and the need for um, basically inputs that we can reduce uh, using biological methods that you know, nature and plants are, are used to growing with. Um, and without incorporating any type of genetically modified uh, practices or uh, adulterations to the, the raw materials that we work with. I love that. I love that. And, and so there, there was quite a few learning lessons, but were there are also a few other ones because so I have a lot of friends in New York, matter of fact, you know, probably Green Bronx Machines, Stefan Ritz of South Bronx, uh, that he does in the classrooms and also in the community, a lot of <clears throat> hydroponics, a lot of these tower, tower farms, tower gardens that, that he does and he's teaching the kids and they also need a different type of nutrient film technology or, or material to come in. They also need a substrate, which is something that, that you guys provide and could provide um, to that. But he's also flipped the switch on how schools feed their kids. A majority of, of people in New York, a majority of people in the world, 
get their food from school when they go to the college or high school or junior high school or elementary half of their food or more is at the school as required by cafeteria cantinas and it's really been kind of a weird system up until some recent movements in the past few years to kind of make a push and get educated and how we can get that control and grow grow our own food back but I, I, I also know that during these two years of craziness and pandemic, there's been a rush on fresh food. There's been a rush on food, period, of preserved food, canned food. Toilet paper was a crazy thing as well. And so we saw all sorts of new learning lessons, how fragile our food systems are. And you, and you mentioned it so, so nicely and, and uh, uh, I'm not sure if we want to dive into it this deep in the beginning, but maybe more in the middle. But the re the reality of how cities and communities and villages started was all based around the food source. And now those in big cities are way outside of the city. And, and that circular economy that you talk about or that circular system of going from agriculture and harvesting food and then taking that food waste back and putting it back on the farm as a fertilizer, as a compost um, to get those nutrients back into the soil, that's not happening. That's also could be another reason why agriculture says, hey, we need some chemicals, fertilizers, whatever, because our, our soils aren't getting that composting that the, those minerals put back in and cities are, as you, you mentioned the number, they're shipping it out to other countries and other places to process and, and take care of. But why? Why aren't we keeping that in the cities? Why aren't we figuring out, like you have, ways to keep that there and keep it in the loop, keep it in the cycle so that we, we use it? And it, it's, I'm sure um, Fran for Paris, France is a big example they do a lot of composting. So they have a system where they actually, um, most of the food waste and compostable waste, they keep in the city now, whereas before they, they used to also ship it out and sell it. And uh, I know it's getting better around the world and even in New York, but it's kind of a new concept. Well, never thought of before. And so I would really like to know what were some of the other learning lessons to say, wow, this is the right business model that I've chosen. This is the right way of thinking I've chosen. And now I'm fixing the food system in New York. I'm fixing the, and setting an example and hopefully we'll expand, but some of those learning lessons I'd like to hear more about and kind of go into more of this composting and how big of a food issue the food waste is and some other things that you've learned. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I can tease that out a bit further for us. So I think there's a large assumption. I mean, we experienced it with investors. I've had one investor say, why don't you just go out and buy the produce, right? Cheap food is so cheap. And it's just crazy. That was back in 2000, I think 15 or 16. Um, the level of understanding of the composting infrastructure that is so different based on region is, is wide. Um, and so let me give an example of a food distributor that's local to, um, let's say, South Bronx, not in the South Bronx, but local to it. They pay roughly $50,000 to have that food waste taken to 
a landfill in this case because the composting facility that is two hours away, um, it has a higher what is called um, tipping tipping fee, right, for the composting facility to turn that compost and accept it for processing. And whereas, you know, in upstate New York, where land is more plentiful uh, for composting facilities, and there's far more a number of those facilities, um, it, it, the tipping fee is, is much less. And so, you know, you, you look at the economics of taking the food waste to a composting facility properly here in New York State. And if you were to look at that in, in Virginia, you know, the tipping fee in Virginia is roughly 30, the last time I checked, 35 to $40 per ton, uh, whereas in New York, I think it's upward of $65 per ton. And so, you know, it, 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 there hasn't been a market force that has made food processors, or let's just say food waste generators, to not do the most economical um, method of getting rid of their food waste, such as sending it to a landfill, um, even though they know that there's a huge risk, whether you think of um, costs or just operationally, that landfills are soon reaching their capacity, right? And the emissions that come from landfilling slash composting facility. Now, uh, taking that into consideration, we try to create a business model that can be as close proximity to the source of the food waste generation as much as possible. We've never entertained, to be quite honest with you, partnering in a way of co-locating our process you know, right now our facility in Rochester, New York is roughly 6,300 square feet. It has the ability to be a, an add-on operation or capability for a large food distributor or processor, for example, but it just adds complexities that we, you know, right now don't need to engage on. Um, but, you know, what the, the other learning lesson aside from composting infrastructure is understanding that the food waste generators you know, there's also a large assumption that they, you know, what's to stop them for, you know, charging for the food waste. And a lot of times they don't want to get into the business of brokering food waste, right? Like it is a nuisance. It's taking up floor space. They just want to get it out as reliably and consistently as possible. Sometimes farms don't provide that service in the most reliable, consistent fashion as much as possible. So, you know, we are able to kind of add value to the food waste supplier in a way that doesn't require us to pay for the food waste as a raw material. And, you know, in, as, as a result of more heightened awareness around ESG and looking at that across the entire value chain for a lot of these food suppliers, manufacturers, et cetera, they also see that it has a lot of positive aspects from a stakeholder engagement and investors and fill in the blank. So, um, you know, I think we were fortunate in creating a business model that is adaptive based on where the food waste is being generated and the scope and the size of it. We do limit the type of food waste to vegetative waste. The learning lesson there for you know, since we were in R&D for roughly seven, almost eight years, is that incorporating things like post-consumer waste that have the animal byproducts and other things that make it a rampant environment for bacteria to thrive, it created a lot of complexities for us that need a highly controlled uh, nutrient source for these indoor farms or those that grow in soilless systems. And so that was a learning lesson because um, we're not making as much impact by focusing on pre-consumed waste. There's a larger waste sharing on the post-consumed, but 
I personally believe that that waste stream is best suited for your traditional composting facility intended for soil. And hopefully there's markets that farmers can uh, afford and maybe there needs to be some type of other profit driven or other model that will allow uh, compost to return to the farm for nutrient replenishment, especially given the loss of topsoil uh, around the country and around the world. So, you know, I think I'm recapping there, the, the composting infrastructure was a huge learning lesson or the gaps of the infrastructure, huge learning lesson for us. The second was the fact of the raw material and the variability of it really can be incredibly disruptive um, for our products and for indoor soilless farms. And then the third one is, you know, the fact that people really don't realize that, um, yes, food waste is unfortunately in abundance, especially around the US. Um, people have seen our business model sometimes as a risk because there's like, well, do you have security of all the food waste that um, you would need to scale? That's not a question or a doubt for us. So I think there's that assumption that, you know, there's 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 risk in supply of food waste. Unfortunately, that's that's not really a threat for us. No, matter of fact, I think that worldwide that number, especially in the past two years, has gone up. And and what we what we're seeing some other examples, and maybe we could compare notes with with what you're seeing in New York. And I know some of the numbers there as well would have been impacting, but. Um, there's and there's always been this debate whether post-consumer, pre-consumer, or, or you know, uh, post-farm, you know, where the the most amount of uh, of waste is. Regardless of that, the entire industry, agriculture, seafood, food and beverage industries, waste uh, today's dates forty percent global is the average and, and it's it's not just that forty percent it's actually an exponential waste it's actually eighty five percent more and we can get into later why that's an exponential waste but because uh, I'll give you one example here what we're seeing in in Europe especially also because of brexit but also because of the covid and the lockdowns, there haven't been as many migrant workers, as many workers, period, and people at work to harvest the food uh, that's grown on the farms during this time of the pandemic. People were sick. They were in lockdown. They weren't at work. And also with the, the example with the Brexit, they had between 400,000 and 600,000 migrant workers every year harvesting their food, processing their food. Those workers weren't there, not only because of COVID, but because of the Brexit, because they voted them out. And so now what they were doing is just tilling that harvestable food back into the ground. So not only did that aggregate, ferment, turn into methane, but it was a huge waste in, in uh, finite resources in, in the time, labor, and everything. Um, where if they just did harvest, there even says, yeah, it will go to waste. We can't process it. We can't do it. But there's an organization like yours that could go pick it up or somehow put it into a compost, put it into a nutrient film technology or and into a, a nutrient for um, hydroponics for, for that. And, and this is something where we might need to <clears throat> clarify. So I've had a lot of podcasts, but, but uh, only one where we kind of got in the technical aspects of vertical farming and hydroponics and aeroponics. And that was with Henry Gordon Smith, 
of uh, uh, agriculture and uh, former formerly of the uh, 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 Association for Vertical Farming and, and that, and he's a good friend of mine, um, where we got into some details, but we've kind of got to clarify. So we're talking, uh, you, you've, you've talked about some things that it's really highly regulated, not only from the EPA, but those hydroponic systems that you're delivering, uh, whether it's substrate to or a nutrients to, a liquid nutrient from these vegetables that you do has to be pathogen free. It has to be organic. It, it cannot have uh, a mixture of animal things in there, genetically modified stuff. It has to be pathogen and really microbial free in that respect. Um, and, and so maybe I'd like you to go into a little bit more for those of us who don't know how that process works and and uh, why it needs to be that way. And also one last thing that I'll throw in there is there's a lot of hydroponic and, and vertical farm systems in the world and especially popping up in New York. So there's, you know, Gotham Greens and there's Square Roots and there's Bright uh, uh, Agriculture and, and on and on. We could go and name many other outfits that are there, Sky Farms, Aero Farms, whoever's in New Jersey and, and the surrounding areas. But um, there are open systems, there's closed systems, there's aquaponics, there's uh, hydroponics, there's aeroponics, there's aerial misting, aerial fogging. So there's a lot of different terminology that we could talk into this industry that you're providing this solution for and, and substrates for. But I'd like you to go a little bit deeper to kind of explain for those of us who, who don't know or don't have that knowledge about why it needs to be pathogen free and why it's so complex and why we're throwing away food waste that could be used as a nutrient right in the city to grow food in the city. Yeah, absolutely. And I can kind of walk you through, you know, what has been the discoveries based on our science. So um, it's not, I wish, I wish it were as simple as using this, the traditional heap uh, composting method that most outdoor composting facilities use, and perhaps taking the tea or the liquid effluent extract of that and using that as the hydroponic or organic hydroponic nutrient, right? Um, it's a, a lot more technical and it's almost incorporating methods from biotechnology without using any type of bacteria, I'm sorry, any type of enzymes, microbes that would are, that do incorporate genetically modified um, engineering or just are required to catalyze the conversion of organic compounds from food waste into what is a more ionic or plant available format, which is you know, nitrogen in the form of nitrate and phosphorus in the form of phosphate, for example. So let me go from step one. We receive the raw materials, and again, this is unrecoverable vegetative waste. So think of broccoli, carrots, um, peas. It's that similar mix every day because we verify with the third party supplier, in this case, a food manufacturer, that the food waste type is gonna be the same. This is the consistent volume that we can anticipate. So right now we're at production volumes of roughly 25 to 50 tons per week, depending on the season. And so um, the, there's con strong contamination protocols that we can to make sure that we have that involved to prevent any type of contamination or risks. 
And so once we receive it, it goes through, like you said, a pasteurization or pathogen kill step for us. Um, so we coin that as sterilization. That means that we are compliant with US EPA uh, 40, which is a CFR rule, which essentially ensures that pathogen destruction uh, within a controlled, monitored, and documented process exists. So for us, the food waste is basically held in a, a fermentation tank tank or chamber, however you see it. Um, it's subjected to 175 degrees Fahrenheit over a minimum of 30 minutes. And that's what allows us to denature um, pathogens. Now, granted, we do often get questions around, um, you know, how do you 100% guarantee there's no herbicide or pesticides? And we know that by the process itself, it does guarantee a minimum of denaturing, but we are in compliance with USDA standards. So that is the minimum protocol that we ensure there. Um, however, with herbicides especially, and I have to be, you know, we put this on our website and our FAQ as well, really transparent because that's how we operate. There are very persistent herbicidal compounds, if that's the right way to say it, that are very hard to denature. And for that reason, um, you know, we reference materials that show that we meet the minimum standard, but, you know, it's, it's hard to 100% guarantee that. Um, and, you know, this is on a tangent, but I do want to mention that's a, that for that uh, reason, you know, I've not been an advocate of using wastewater or um, waste affluent from municipal wastewater treatment plants as a source of nutrients. I know some of these um, indoor farms are looking at that as a way to reduce the dependency on mineral salts and reduce emissions, but I'm a strongly opposed to that because when you look at forever chemicals and some of these more pharmaceutical compounds that require very sophisticated standalone process, it's very hard to remove that. So I, I'm not in support of that. But coming back to our process, so once it's gone through a pathogen kill step, we then basically, um, our kind of secret sauce is how we biologically use a process to basically take the food waste and turn it into a water-soluble format. All that means when someone says water-soluble, that means as soon as the plant receives that nutrient, whether it's in powdered form or liquid, our organic hydroponic nutrient product is in liquid, the plant can immediately absorb it as, as nutrients. Whereas other organic uh, amendments, whether it's soil or for hydro, some people use liquid backwano. Typically in um, a soil system, you would have the, the very rich microbes that are already innate to that soil microbial area to break down the nutrients. And in a, in a hydroponic system, you know, that may require sometimes seven to 10 days and the supplementation of additional microbes to break them down those nutrients in the liquid backwato and turn it into a water soluble or plant available format. So we've reduced that. That means the farm does not need one additional product like microbes to make that happen. Two, they don't need a separate tank from their water reservoir to essentially ferment or degrade or break down those nutrients with those microbes so that it can finally be plant available. We've already done that hard work using what we call organic cycling science method to do that. And then essentially the products that um, is after it's gone through that, that process, we, uh, we package in uh, bulk volume or in liquid containers um, for fulfillment. So, you know, to kind of make sure that I make sense of what I just said, 
we're essentially reducing what is called, you know, mineralization or the breaking down of nutrients of organic compounds of minerals that can be sourced from food waste because we, we want to source from this replenishable waste stream um, and make it plant available. And normally in a hydroponic system, that's incredibly difficult, which is why it took us this long to achieve that. Now you use the term in there and I want to go a little bit deeper, liquid back guano. Do you want to explain that to, uh, or sh should I help? Go for it. <laughs> so the, 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 the guano is, is really simply said bat, uh, is shit. It's, yeah. it's bird shit, really. And that's the original guano from a long time ago is something that we used and, and, and began to run out of in, in, in our farms uh, to, to help with fertilizer. The, and, and so we don't want to get farming and agriculture, believe it or not, is not a natural thing. It is a science. It is a, a, it is a process. And, and we, we don't want to make it a chemical one or a pesticide one or herbicide one. But we want to, to know that to germinate a seed, to, to do composting, whether you're doing it the way that you do it for your um, nutrient composition, uh, or you do it in a natural um, <clears throat> composting process, it, it's, it's still a process to do it. And so when you talked about heat and fermentation and, that you use in your process, but not a lot of people know that there's an extreme amount of heat generated in normal manure composting, normal composting piles that is extremely high uh, and also kind of needed to get the right type of liquid and compost there that generates that nice dark soil. And anybody who's done, whether it's permaculture, regenerative agriculture or regenerative organics or organics or just normal victory garden composting knows that there's certain things that you really wanna have and, and, and get into your, for a nice composting mix. And there's absolutely some things that you want to have far away from your composting pile to avoid those pathogens and those wrong things from getting in there to that really do no good for you as a, 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 for con consumption, but also for your plants and your soils to heal those soils. And um, last year, wonderful film came out, uh, Kiss the Ground, talking about healing our soils, capturing carbons, importance of composting and many other things. But I believe that there's a healthy mix between um, traditional um, agriculture, industrial agriculture, permaculture, regenerative agriculture, uh, agroecology, agroforestry. And the ones that don't belong in the mix for me is uh, the traditional agriculture and industrial agriculture, they belong nowhere in the mix for me and human health, uh, for environmental health. Um, the, the biggest way to stop human suffering and uh, human health issues and to solve our environmental problems is to really fix our food systems. It is the world's oldest 
and longest and most successful economy the world has ever seen. It's 12,000 years old and it's called an agrarian society. Farming, that's the, the best economy. It's also had the biggest impact on our environment and on our human health, especially when industrial agriculture, uh, industrial farming got into the mix and we started to use chemicals, pesticides, fertilizers, herbicides, and then it became a fossil fuel and a chemical company business uh, and, and, and had nothing to do with real, real uh, good science and healthy science, in, in my opinion. So I'm, I'm a little bit biased in that. And so uh, I, I want to give everybody the knowledge because of, of your seven years of experience of flushing out um, the bugs, so to say, learning lessons and figuring out how to do what you do. And it sounds like you're doing it very well. Um, it, it can be complex, but, it, but it's something that's so beautiful if it's done right and we, and we do it that can really heal human health in, in our environment. And so I, I commend you for that. And I, I, I kind of wanted to just bring out those maybe things that I hear that I know from my listeners and people who they've maybe been in the banking industry like you or in the financial industry like you or come from the technology background uh, uh, like me or, or law and don't have that, that insight to that basic need uh, of humanity. And so the past two years, there's been this emerging trend with the UN Food Systems Summit, um, because of COVID in 2020, we had to postpone it to this year, but that our food systems and the awareness are really rising to the surface because it's the only way we're gonna fix our, 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 our global grand challenges, our human suffering, our poverty, and our environmental problems. And so now everybody's talking about it. How can we, not just feed a growing population, but how can we do it to, to address the SDGs, but also to address our environmental problems. Uh, and so I think we're on the right track. And I, I believe also that that played a big part of why you've started uh, Renewable is because of the sustainability aspect, because of the human health aspect, because of the environmental aspect. And I just want to kind of hear what kind of impacts you have. You, you describe them in some of your products, like in, in um, is it uh, a way we grow? Also, you know, you know, eliminate certain amount of metric tons of CO2 and things. Um, I would like to kind of hear how that journey happened and why you decided that. And, and what was the aha moment where you said, hey, food is the key. The way we do food is the key. Maybe even what pushed you to, to eat vegetarian or vegan uh, as you do and what, what that transition and what your learning lessons have been and kind of the journey you've been on. It's interesting. And I appreciate that, Mark, because I think... Um you know, these sometimes podcasts can become repetitive and it may seem like the interviewer has this agenda and I'm just solely open to what, what are people not kind of seeing and hearing? So I, 
you know, I never, so we focused on indoor farms solely because it has always been challenging for them to incorporate biologicals. Um, and the main kind of invasive challenge that they experience is if they were to use, let's say compost tea, which you and I can create from home from our own kitchen scrap waste, cheap, available. Um, granted, it's uh, purchasable and highly volatile depending on the day that it's been sitting, but, um, you know, we, we wanted to resolve the challenge for them first because we wanted to convert them more to using less mineral salts. And the mineral salts contributes anywhere between 1.5 to 3% of the global greenhouse gas emissions. Um, and to do that, not for every crop, but with the indoor farming industry lar largely growing leafy greens, herbs, tomatoes um, as a predominant crop, um, you know, we felt that if those crops were more favorable to supplement uh, nutrients sourced from food waste than, let's say, potatoes or even other high nitrogen feeding crops that we aren't able to reach those nutrient levels required by the crop, right? So we are limited in our crop type that we can focus on or deliver impact for. Um, but the, the main thing is, as a result of serving them, we also realized that some of what they're, though, that industry is focused for, focused on, which is very niche, even though I think they estimate the compounded annual growth rate of roughly 24% from here on out. Um, and they're estimating vertical farming to be an industry of 50 billion by 2030, don't quote me on the year, um, you know, is they are challenged by the wastewater that they have and often have to discharge depending on the crop that they're growing either every two weeks um, or every three months. It really depends on their own nutrient protocols and, and kind of uh, sanity, not sanity, but um, safety. Sanitation. And thank you. Um, and their food waste that's on site at the farm as well. So think of your root trimmings, your post-harvest um, trimmings from just prepping it for retail or distribution. And so the same was um, voiced by our open field farms as well. So they, the whole goal is, or what we were listening and hearing is that they wanna take byproducts from production and use that to return value back to the farm. And, and we try to focus on turning that into biostimulants because one thing that I'm excited by, but we're still early on our research is how can we help these farms become more resilient to drought conditions, right? Are the inputs um, helping them adapt to water limited constraints? Um, are they adapting to you know, being able to use less fertilizer um, or just hopefully no mineral salt fertilizer? And so, the main lesson there, kind of uh, repeating the pattern, what I'm trying to make sure we create as takeaways is that um, every farm has consistently voiced the interest in trying to become as much as possible as an environmental steward and trying to transition off chemicals and the dependency for large water sourcing because they recognize that um, uh, water consumption is, is being limited. When you look in Central Valley, California, Farms are, are willing to, to basically sell their unused water at $575 per acre of foot water, I'm sorry, of unused water at $575 per acre um, to, to water-starved landowners. And, you know, how can we help these farms require less of water as an input, require less of ag chemicals as an input, not only here in the U.S., 
but you also see that in Africa and MENA and Singapore and elsewhere, because my goal and vision has always been not only increasing the resource efficiency, but also reducing dependence on imports in that way, because there's more than enough what I, what I believe and capabilities to source these nutrients from localized waste streams. It's just a lot of these farms go based on what is tried and true from generations of, of, of growing methods. And you know, not that they're resistant to what we're doing, but it does take a lot of R&D and education on our end to show that we can provide comparable results to mineral salts or the latter. Um, so I hope that gives you a little bit of insight it absolutely does. And, and you say you don't have the, the, the background, but because you're a, a true entrepreneur and a business owner, you've become a, a, a solid expert in, in this area. But it's, it, I, I want to kind of give my listeners hope, those who are start looking to start up new urban ag business or a new startup or, or something in the food systems, um, that there is so many areas that can be looked in that are untapped. And the market is enormous. It's the entire world eats. So you're, you know, there, I, I doubt that anybody's going to encroach or come in and, and take your share of the, of the market away, but that you give hope to someone who might have been working at a bank or a financial institute or in tech or something else and said, you know, this is not my calling. I'd like to try something else. I'd like to try something that connects me to nature, or connects me to how I can help uh, communities, uh, inner, inner city schools and communities to, to get them to food security and food sovereignty and to out of insecurity and out of uh, unhealthy situations um, to be more resilient in the future. And that, that even though you, you've ha had seven, you know, since 2011 um, and a lot of research and trials and experts on your team that you, that you work with and get a lot of help with, that, that curve is something that, that anybody can make, that anybody can get if the passion is there, if, if the, the willingness to see the need is there. And um, I guess I just want to, th there was something in there that I really want to touch upon before we move on. And that was the, the composting and the food waste um, aspect of it that I, I think is such an un unrealized potential. I want to address it in two ways. So I deal a lot with Africa and Ethiopia, the World Food Program and different areas around the world where they're producing food for Europe, they're producing food for the United States, they're producing legumes and, and, and other things. And what's happening is in a lot of areas, these products are reaching the border to the customs and because of the curve, the shape, the size, or for some reason, they're being denied uh, to go on further to the end destination to be processed, to be used in, in a lot of respects. And, and Ethiopia stands out the most for me because uh, of a couple of projects I've worked with on the World Food Program where that's been a big issue. And for them, it's easier to burn the product or just throw it in a landfill right at the customs than it is to ship it back 
to those farms that just harvest it, wasted all the water and everything um, uh, to, to send it back, where that is a huge waste. It's a huge composting issue. It's a huge resource that if we kept those within our borders in, in, in the areas where we were growing those and closed the loop somehow or brought those loops into our cities somehow, um, we would have food sovereignty. We would have stability. We would have whole nother streams of income because that is income. And, and um, so I, I want to address that in, in a couple different respects because that goes to, to two areas. One, we've turned food into a commodity. And when you turn food into a commodity, it, it uh, cheapens food. And when you cheapen food, you cheapen life. Um, no way in heck can it be the true cost or the true cost accounting of food to water it, grow it, harvest it, package it, transport it, have those emissions, and then say, oh, we're just going to throw it away before it hits anybody's stomach, plate, grocery store, processor. That, that's insanity. We're on a finite planet that just cannot exist. How do we stop that inefficiency, that waste, that bad business model? I mean, you would never tell Elon Musk, hey, you just produced that ugly cyber truck. Now throw 40% of them away and then the rest you can start to sell. He'd say, boy, that's a bad business model. I would never do that. And he's very renewable and recyclable and wants to close the loop and doing great things as well. But that's just bad business. That doesn't make sense. That's insanity. But why have we been doing it in, in the agriculture industry and the food industry for so many decades, for so many centuries? It, it just doesn't make sense. And it's not getting better. We're wasting more land. We're wasting, wasting more resources. So that's one aspect. Maybe if you want to address or speak to any of that, we can do that. And then I'll talk to you about the second half of that in the second half of my question. Yeah, and I appreciate that, Mark, because you raised two really good points. So the first one is, you know, you're right. There is this untapped um, human capital, especially in rural areas. And, you know, when you think about hydroponic and indoor farms, you relegate it often to urban areas. But we can take that same opportunity and disseminate it or distribute it in rural agricultural economies as well. Because when you look at, and a colleague, I can't even take credit for this, but a colleague reminded me of, you know, a lot of people that uh, um, are trained and have worked for years because it's their family-owned farms, are some of the best agronomists, some of the best soil scientists, the best farmers, right? They're going to know how to operate an indoor farm than someone, me, that's kind of starting from scratch. This is not now, but years ago, right? So, you know, if we can reduce the, the entry barriers of the cost of the equipment and make it into almost an operating model that can be easily replicated, let's say within distressed um, properties that commercial or industrial just don't have the tenants anymore, um, you know, that's something that we're really excited about and is a, a project that we'll be announcing late September, October called the Glens Falls um, Urban Agricultural Pilot. And it's purely put together to see how we can replicate the vertical farming model in rural areas to increase the diversity of their crop type, increase their revenue stream, and make it year round of growing throughout the U.S. But on the other side, 
you know, those that are, are trying to see how they can also be a part of this, but, you know, don't really see that what maybe an existing business model or product type, um, they don't see an opportunity behind it. Uh, and you raise that, you raise the idea of well, why are some of these farms just going about keeping the unharvested, let's say tomatoes, and then just tilling that, you know, I've always thought, why haven't people considered, you know, composting as a service for these farms? So if they're talking about, and I don't, I don't know, do you know the latest on the topsoil depletion and how much that has been eroded? Yeah, I, I, um, I, I do kind of. So the, in 2015, the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations, UNFAO, came out and said we have um, 70 harvests left. And um, today's date, uh, uh, August uh, 19th, uh, as we're recording this, uh, 2021, we actually have 45 harvests left. And, and that is part of that soil depletion because of runoff, because of chemicals and pesticides and fertilizers, degradation, deforestation of those soils. Um, we're, we're looking at back to, to uh, uh, Roosevelt's time when we had the dust bowls in the United States where the soil was already depleted then. We're looking at times back in, in any of the civilizations that collapsed uh, due to ecological or environmental collapse that we have just put so much strain on our soils through industrial agriculture that we have, and that's not 45 years, that's 45 harvests. And that depending on what pandemics and what runs on food and what kind of crops, cover crops we do or don't use in those systems, whether we're gonna get 45 or where we're gonna have a lot less here in the next, um, the next few years um, of, of that production. But that's kind of the actual amount of soil uh, is variable, but I, I don't know the latest numbers, but I do know that it's 45 left, which is pretty scary. And, and that's why I'm really pushing organic. That's why I'm pushing the whole hydroponic and uh, um, aeroponics, aquaponics, the different op options out there not to take over um, agriculture, but as another tool in the toolbox to kind of supplement, especially in the urban and the rural and, and, and some rural, but in the urban areas in the cities where there's not a lot of farmland there. And we're, we, we can do that in different ways that, that work just as good, keeping those minerals and nutrients in a closed loop within the cities um, on how, how we do it and also letting new farms that are emerging doing regenerative agroforestry or agroecology to regenerate, to, to, to kind of pause and, and get back up to speed if they're transitioning from industrial ag to a new form of agriculture, which hopefully will go into cover crops and perennials and mixed uses because there, there's a couple of new, new books and thoughts that are, that have been out there for a while, but they're really getting traction along with Kiss the Ground and uh, the Rodale Institute and um, uh, Alan Savory, the, the um, holistic land management and, and, and how we integrate different farming and agriculture methods. And that is water for any farm from, um, 
Mark Shepard and also restoration agriculture from Mark Shepard. And that is how do we uh, do it anywhere in the world to fix our systems, to keep these food systems alive where in areas where there might be flooding or in areas where there might be drought, how do we fix our farming systems and get them back to where we need to, to be to have the amounts of water that we need to have those things while we're doing what we're doing in, in cities in urban setting. So I, I don't know if you have any more to say on that, but I wanted to get on the second point. Um, but do you have any more that you wanted to say towards the soil or? No, the last thing I'll say, and, and all of what you said, I, I'm in full agreement with is, uh, you know, composting as a service on site at these farms, I think has a lot of, of value and, and I'm surprised we don't see more of those models operating. Similarly, biochar, ton of research, research out there to show how biochar can help us convert um, more seamlessly to regenerative soils. Um, surprised we don't see more of that as well. Yeah, and it also um, creates fabulous products. I mean, the use of biochar, the flavors, the sweetenings that the, that happen out of the, the specific crops that are used with biochar, there's a big difference. So you can really tell the difference in the minerals, nutrient value in those products that come out of it. Uh, especially compared to industrial agriculture where you're like this doesn't have any taste there's no minerals and nutrients in here that's a, why are we eating this this the thing is is in, in a lot of respects we're not eating it first cars are eating it as ethanol second our animals are eating it and, and so it's going through this really imbalanced process and, and the stuff that we do get a, a, to eat uh, um i I've tried to stop eating it years ago because it just, there's no taste. My taste buds have changed. Something's changed. I had that same conversation today with um, Peter Singer. Um, the, the, the second part, the kind of iteration of, of this question that ties into uh, the soil health and, and the different methods and this true cost that, that we have is really, there, there's a learning lesson that's been emerging more and more over the years and that it's really not about the products of the future and the brands of the future. It's how we produce anything that will have the biggest impact on human health and on our environment. What I mean by that to explain it, if I think you get it, but it, it is um, if we use good practices, no aromas, no flavorings, no preservatives, no pesticides, no chemicals, no fossil fuels. If we use renewable energy, recycled water, rainwater, ambient water harvesting, if we use good practices of our um, or, organic and regenerative organic uh, nutrients and, and things that have been done in a way without um, harm or use of almost, in some respects, uh, excessive use of finite resources, it's almost virtually impossible to produce a product that is bad for human health, bad for our environment, and that is not loaded with, with 
coming from healthy soil or from a hydroponic perspective coming from that it's almost beyond organic in the type of nutrients, the type of root growth and, and, and minerals and vitamins that can be found in that product. And there's an extra layer on that, that, that I think most, even in the association for vertical farming, even in, in the vertical farming, hydroponic, aquaponic area that has kind of fallen by the wayside that a lot of people are missing. And I don't know if, if, if you're doing it and I'm not calling you out on it or anything, but I kind of want to ask if you've thought about that or how, how you're applying that in your processes or if you're using third-party help to do that because you're a new startup or a new uh, company that's kind of still growing to do, do it on your own. But why aren't the aero farms and the sky farms and the... Um, um plenties and and the other big players uh the green bronx machine why aren't they using renewable energy recycled rainwater uh why aren't they using non-finite resources to to do their products in a different way because wouldn't that take the high cost of energy of land water and this power out of the system to reduce your cost of goods sold and increase your 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 margins i guess on the products you're producing which is necessary in some respects to be competitive on a really crappy market of industrial pro, uh, food uh, industrial ag food um, uh, that is selling you know a head of lettuce for six cents or 16 cents or 60 cents, you know, uh, whatever it is that you say, okay, no, this is sustainable and organic or beyond organic type of a product. And that's why it costs so much because it costs more in energy. It gets done here in the city or whatever reason. But if, what if we took those other factors out of that and put them in our cost of goods sold and in the way we produced wouldn't that balance that to make it competitive on that, but also bring it more towards the true cost of those products? And I, and I really think that I think it ties into the, the first half of the question that we talked about and, that, and the true cost accounting and that. And that's why I bring it up. I don't see a lot of people moving in that direction or do you and, and do you use those processes yourself and how do you feel about that and is that just something in the future and we haven't hit the sweet spot to make that that leap to where we need to be in the future. Yeah, that's a great question and I think I'm just going to assume here I think it comes down to the proximity to the renewable energy sources and I'll give an example to that. And then secondly, um, the CapEx involved with that. So how well capitalized are these farms to take on things like renewable uh, solar energy, uh, not renewable, but solar energy in the form of panels. Um, so the first example, which is Intergo Greenhouse, it's a tomato um, farm in upstate New York, um, very kind of integrated or uses a lot of Dutch-based technologies. But what they were fortunate or able to take advantage of is a local anaerobic digester. And that anaerobic digester was able to provide um, uh, very passive heat 
that's an off heat or waste source from the anaerobic digester and the greenhouse, I, I apologize, I missaid that, the greenhouse is able to take advantage of that um, waste heat from the anaerobic digester and use that to reduce their energy cost to keep the controlled temperature throughout the grow season. Um, in the case of able to afford those these capital intensive improvements, um, App Harvest is a great example of that. I can't remember that how much they've been funded by VC investment, but at least at it's least a hundred. Yeah. yeah, it's a quite yeah. a bit, like at least a hundred. I think it's about 150, if not 180, it's quite a bit. So they've done a great job of being outfitted with solar panels. Um, and I think they plan on replicating the model that they have in Kentucky with the additional strawberry and tomato and leafy green farms that they're um, now building out. So, you know, with those two in hand, if a farm has access to those things, then I see it as, um, you know, th that's been their advantage. I know the shipping container farm model, like freight farms, tries to, um, not tries, but they have, they've partnered with a renewable energy uh, supplier, I think in the form of wind and maybe another source of renewable energy to basically give access to this renewable energy market to all of their freight farm shipping container operators. So really kind of creative to how to make this less capitally intensive, capital intensive, um, but accessible. Now for us, we try to be as proactive as possible, even though we have a low energy intensive manufacturing model. What's interesting, Mark, is that our facility in Rochester, New York, um, they don't allow for uh, us to be able to supply or source energy besides the main utility conglomerate in Rochester. So, you know, it's been a consideration for a long term because that's totally against our brand, right? If we're not able to have ownership of solar panels or if we want to source from geothermal, you know, why are we here? Um, yeah, so I, I wish it were different. Unfortunately, we're committed to a five-year lease, but, you know, that's where we're at. Yeah, and a, and a lot of people are that way. And, a lot, uh, and the same with the industry, our production industry of food, um, and I tease a lot, is really stuck in the dark ages and some processing facilities out there are still using very antiquated and outdated uh, processes to produce the product, certain packaging things, certain binding materials, certain things that are needed in the pro processing of, of certain type of foods that, that um, require processing or, or um, um, heat treatment or, or different things in the process before it's given for consumption um, that, that are outdated and just older models that are not very efficient anymore. And that's also a big factor where that waste comes in that uh, could be brought back to um, through processing or through production, could be brought back to the farms, could be brought to, back to you in an urban location to handled in a different way. And I think in a lot of respects, we're close on the curve to seeing that bend and switch to a model. So we've seen the renewable industry just it's almost cheaper than fossil fuels at this point in different parts around the world. And that 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 curve is really bent and it's the price point is right and, and uh, it's there. But in the food industry, we've got a little bit more to go. But I, I feel we're on the cusp. I feel that we're really getting close. And there's some new models and new technologies out there that, that are really coming along that we're seeing 
you know, we're seeing cellular agriculture, precision fermentation. We're seeing the true uh, acceptance of, of hydroponics, aquaponics, and, you know, vertical farming or closed environmental agriculture and people beginning to understand that market were in some respects, it was kind of distant. They didn't understand it, that really nurseries had been going on for a long time, hanging gardens of Babylon and the Netherlands and Belgium are very far advanced in, these in this industry. And it's, it's not a new thing, but now we're taking it up and making it more efficient and that it's something that really can be pushed forward in a lot of respects. I, I, I believe you guys have something like three or four products or am I wrong? Or do you have more than that? Yeah, no, there's, there's three. Um, we have the liquid organic hydroponic nutrient called a wavy grow just has a 411 um, primarily used for leafy greens and, and herbs. Um, and then we have for new Terra, which is an alternative to rock wool. Uh, essentially it allows plants to be grown in an alternative to soil. So rock wool looks something like this. Um, it requires a lot of petroleum fuel to manufacture and is often expensive. So from a emissions perspective, it certainly does help to be using that and it can't be composted. So we provide 100% compostable alternative using sawdust biochar and, and we add our own kind of biostimulants to the product. Um, and then third is our on-site food waste recovery system. Uh, that system allows for farms to be able to, be able to take their uh, wastewater byproducts and um, their post-production pride products such as trimmings and turn that into biostimulants into um, uh, for return back into the farm. That last system isn't commercially available. We're very selective with the farms that we work with right now, given that it is early, um, but we do have two pilots essentially starting this fall. Yeah, and it's all, I would imagine it's very personal, uh, specific type of systems that you work in, in the, the region, the location, the farm, the size, what, what's needed. So that's, that's, uh, that's great. I, I love those. And I, and I actually think that uh, I see, and I'm, you know, just uh, get, getting to know enough about renewable um, to be dangerous through you, thank goodness. And so the research I've I've done is, but I see so much potential in the future for uh, different type of pro uh, products and things to emerge that are are just as much needed in the arena. Um, I've I've seen some emergence through other organizations. I deal with a lot of um, vertical farm companies and and companies around the world. Uh, just was on a call yesterday with the Philippines, which was amazing on on some some new things popping up there um, that are, are looking into using uh, um, in their nutrient film technology, some healthy microorganisms, some pro and prebiotic type of mixtures in there to, to get that natural uh, gut health back in similar to, to what we see people taking supplements of pro and prebiotics in, into that process that there's um, some mycorrhiza tablets that are, are beginning to be used to stimulate a better root growth and longer root growth for more mineral absorption and less water, uh, better water absorption, but in, in a different way. Some new technologies uh, uh, also that are film technologies that, um, 
were actually tested in the deserts in uh, Saudi Arabia and Dubai and in different areas. Um, growing broccoli in sand with a nutrient film technology that was on a drip system using 98% less water than wow. traditional methods. But because of this film technology, it somehow allowed the absorption of the water better and, and was which, which, which it was, they tested in the, in the desert, um, in the sand, but it was actually meant for hydroponics uh, systems. So how they can use and, and, and get some better systems in there. So I see so much potential for this to grow and expand and some other options to come about. Um, uh, so I, I see plenty of opportunities for you. I only have four questions left for you. Um, the next two are probably are, yeah, four questions, five questions, maybe five questions. The okay. next two are the hardest uh, for you. Um, or a lot of my guests think they're hard. And that is, do you feel like you're a global citizen? And how would you feel about the removal of borders, nations, walls, limitations of humanity one from another? Um, and what is your view or understanding of this? And I want to caveat that or kind of give you a prelude to that. During this two years of this pandemic that we're going on, um, and all the other crazy things that have happened. There's been an extreme re rise of nationalism and, and separation of humanity. But during this time, food was a global citizen. COVID was a global citizen. Air, water, climate change was a global citizen. Um, and even though we were on lockdown, it's amazing how much food still traveled around the world and, and took the seats on the airplanes that were not full as a global citizen in some respects, uh, um, which was also crazy. Um, and so I just kind of want to get your feelings on that. Would it change the world? Would it make things different? Is that something that's possible? And how do you think it would affect your life or your view if we went to something like that? What are your feelings? Yeah, you know, I, I'm, I'm multiracial. My grandmother's German. My dad is Cape Verdean. I apologize. My mother is German and black and my dad is Cape Verdean. Um, and I've always had the mindset of, you know, if I'm going to create impact in the world or even here in New York City, um, it needs to be relevant, you know, culturally and globally. Um, and I think that I do this fastidiously with renewal, right? So it's not only focused on how we can make the impact here in the U.S., um, where we're a little more well-resourced than elsewhere, but, you know, replicate it outside of the U.S. where there's greater challenges on water and other natural resources. Um, the second question around, do I believe that we should remove all borders? Um, that's, that is a hard question because I'm certainly one of equality and I, it would, if I couldn't, I wouldn't have it in me, the heart or the faith, however you want to coin it as, to say that, you know, if we had um, resources here and watching a family in front of us that were over across the border, uh, our neighboring border, and watch their family go through a significant amount of trauma uh, by simply saying that we wouldn't allow for them to cross the border, I, 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 I couldn't say no, right? However, I do think 
there's a lot of sensitivities to how things like migrant um, movement around the world should be managed. Um, I had a, a great dinner with a friend yesterday and she was coming from, uh, you know, she's traveled widely as, as much as you. Um, and she was coming from Rwanda and, uh, you know, just looking, and she now kind of really wants to focus on, you know, migrant kind of just uh, relationships and how to manage it um, from a policy as well as just like economic perspective. And I think that's a hard challenge and it, it's only going to be exacerbated as we continue to endure things like climate change and the shift of economies more local or higher, more um, closer in proximity to urban areas. And so I guess if I were to say in short order, what my answer would be to that is I'm mixed. Um, I believe in giving help to people because I'm a human at the end of the day and I'm, I'm very conscious in that way. However, I don't think you can just open the border completely and quickly without really properly planning because there's just so many different subcultures within subcultures within subcultures that you do introduce a lot of, whether it's geopolitical risk or other things that require just a lot of planning and foresight to make sure that you're blending very different types of people in, in a either fixed area or a much larger area. Um, did I hit all those questions? You, you did, you absolutely did. And I, 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 I wanna be a little tough and, and go, uh, go deeper. I wanna stimulate a couple more things. So um, just recently in Germany, and I'm glad to hear you have ties to Germany. So I also have ties to Germany. I have a fond heart for Germany, but I am American. Um, is we, we accepted a lot of climate refugees, a lot of conflict refugees from Syria and, and from other countries and still do. Probably one of the, the, the biggest countries to accept um, climate refugees and conflict re refugees. Uh, especially here in Hamburg, where I'm at, I think it was the, the state that uh, accepted the most, close to 30,000 just here in Hamburg alone, um, and has done a fabulous job of integration. The problem is, is uh, in 2017 in May, we had some flooding in Germany, killed about 260 people, and had about uh, 800 million in, in insurance damages in those floods. But just in the past couple of weeks, Belgium, Germany, even London um, had some severe supercell storms flooding, uh, had close to 1,000 people still missing, uh, more than 300 uh, presumed dead already, 380-something already presumed dead, and um, close to $20 billion in insurance damages, and the number is still rising. Now, Germany has tons of climate refugees in its own country. Um, so, so that's one aspect to think about. Before they were bitching and moaning about Syrian refugees or refugees coming in. Now, because of climate change, some Germans are not are, are refugees now living in churches and in schools. Um, their home is gone, it's flood, it's damaged, all their, all their things are done. So they've kind of been forced to be um, um, a refugee or a kind of displaced, which has to do with global citizenry and movement. 
but also um, the simple fact that we're all crew members of this spaceship Earth. We're all Homo sapiens. Um, we're, you know, we we've all moved around. That we all walked out of the 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 plains of the savannas in Africa, and and um, moved around this Earth. And so now we're dividing ourselves amongst each other. And I'm just don't see how the tie to what to what you do um you're you're recovering food waste that compost that used to be shipped around the world you mentioned the numbers and the millions and how much was being shipped out why is it okay for our food to be global citizens or us to get our food from other places or to ship our waste to other places but as human beings that's not allowed Oh, interesting. Um, maybe let me clarify. So I don't agree with food waste being handled globally across the world, right? Like I'm where where of the position of it should be a localized waste stream that should be handled locally and then distributed ideally within that region. Um, we only have one facility right now, but ideally as we scale, we can distribute that. Um, and then that's the food waste side. And then also for food production, similarly, right? Because there's no reason why Singapore is importing 90% of their food. Um, and so food as a system shouldn't be dealt with on a global perspective. And I think we're seeing the industry shift in such a way that they have become more of a domestic production and prioritizing that nationalistic perspective. Um, my personal belief in that um, the treatment and handling of migrants and the displacement of people should have should be with the lens of a global citizen from how just like how, how should you say it um, you know I'm a very humanistic person very spiritual and I just feel like you know if if I have the resources I'm more than willing to to distribute it right um, but I, what I do want to clarify is that I am aware that you can't just open the floodgates and just um, allow for the, the re, I guess the repopulation of taking one displaced population, yeah. distribution, right? Um, just anywhere. I think it, it just needs to be a very kind of like uh, uh, proactive planning for that so that you know you can minimize any type of conflict um i want to make sure i answer your question Do oh you, you did I, I think i've made it too complex and oh, okay it's okay you've answered it you've answered it perfectly and there is no right or wrong answer and i don't it's not meant to to put you in a political or tough situation it's just um uh, sometimes the the ethics or the things that we think about we don't always think about that it's okay for us to get our food from around the world, from other mm -hmm. countries, or to have the environmental impact of the food that we get or the products, the cell phones, the computers, or whatever that we get from China or other places, that that environmental impact, that that land and resource use is in another country. But when it comes time for those other countries to come and visit us or to, to change the location where they live or when they're in need that it's their problem it was okay for us to to get our resources there that is not part of the u.s or germany or or wherever um 
um, and this happens a lot with animal agriculture. Thankfully, you, you, you've kind of distanced yourself from that issue. Uh, but but uh, we don't look at it in those perspectives. We just kind of say, no, I'm an American, I'm a German or, or, or whatever, and, and uh, we don't see the bigger picture. The United Kingdom, the, the whole Brexit vote was basically around migrant workers based around food to keep them out because they felt they were taking jobs. Those jobs didn't get filled after the Brexit vote. And it really put them in a conundrum and a, in, in a precarious situation specifically around food because the United Kingdom still today, even with a Brexit and lockdown, um, four times the land mass and size of the United Kingdom and actually even five times the land mass is used elsewhere around the world to produce food for the United Kingdom. So it's not okay for those migrant workers and food processors to be there because they're taking jobs and maybe even resources, but it is okay to use those land and those resources around the world in other countries that they're also kind of saying, nope, we don't want to have nothing to do with you, but, but we do want to steal your resources. We do want to call different form of colonization or whatever manipulation or to leave the environmental impact in those countries, but reap the benefit of those products that we get. And so uh, that, that's kind of the stimulation, not only for my listeners, but for you and to get your thoughts and opinions on that, on how we can fix that. Because I think that's a key of fixing human suffering and, and fixing environmental and ecological problems that we need to solve. And that's what your business does. Yeah, and I'll, I'll give you one other great example. Um, I was speaking with a friend yesterday, and this is the one from Rwanda, and she was telling me how the FAO would have funded projects where they would have a reserve of water to fund those specific farms, and there was a limited number of who, how much their fertilizer they were allocated, the water, et cetera, right? Um, and those projects were often ill-managed because they weren't they didn't have someone on the ground to be there throughout the entire 12 months to really provide that support in a number of ways. So oftentimes they would fail, but the problem was, is like, okay, how do you have farm that isn't a FAO focused farm or pilot, um, but suffering because they don't have access to the same water that the FEO uh, uh, projects have access to. So I agree. Um, you know, if, if, and the last thing I'll say is that if a, if a country is providing resources or, or taking resources, which is often the case, especially in the U.S., from other countries, they need to do it with such this perspective of what are the ways that we're enriching without extracting um, and leaving externalities that, you know, they're, they're ultimately going to face because of operating and take colonizing that area, if you really want to call it out. Yeah, and I, I, I think that was also kind of the tie-in to the second half of the question that I asked you as well, where we talked about this true cost accounting or total environmental cost as percentage of EBITDA is because a lot of those environmental impacts are absorbed in other, other places, and we don't pay the true cost. We didn't pay the, the environmental impact, the water, the the harvest, the land, all those emissions that were created, whether it's in China or in Australia or somewhere else where those products were, were produced, Fiji water, and then shipped to the US or to Europe or to wherever. Uh, and, 
and that is a system that has a limit to growth. It stops. There's a, a point where our world, our finite planet can't handle that anymore. And so that's, that's the interesting fact I like. I want us to think about that because as we're in a time of talking about United Nations Food Systems Summit and global food reform and, and things like that, how can we truly come up with a system that is regenerative, that works for forever. And that leads me to my last hardest question for, for you. Um, it's the burning question, WTF. And no, it's not the swear word that everybody's probably been saying, but it's what's the futures. And I want to be even more specific. I want your answer, your specific answer, whether it's renew renewable or for you personally. But what does a world that works for everyone look like for you? And maybe what is the future? What, what is the futures? You know, is it, it's plural. What everybody has a little bit different version and what is it for you? Yeah, um, I'll kind of answer it me personally and then me professionally with Renewable. So personally for me, I think the future is is helping farms and sharing the access to the technology and the research and the awareness of making these farms adaptable to drought and also increasing the nutritional value so that like we're having better access to food that isn't industrially grown. Um, professionally with the renewable hat on, I see that done in a way that is distributed and more collaborative. So when I think of like manufacturing, right? You have manufacturing hubs, we have like business parks, and oftentimes whether it's the access to the energy supply or the real estate, they're done in such a way where it's kind of like a shared resource pool. So the cost is subsidized for all the other tenants. And I kind of see that, or maybe I would like to see that in agricultural economies. I'll give you a great example. And I kind of just based on this incredible conversation from last night, um, Rwanda was so clear for me. So you have this great uh, supplement from, which is bobao powder from a great bobao tree. Um, and the Germans have really kind of monetized that tree. So they've you know, acquired this several thousands of acres of land and they take the tree, um, harvest what they need from it and then essentially pulverize it to turn into that bobao powder that people like you and I pay too much for. So, and then, but the local Rwandians, maybe out of ignorance, I hope I'm explaining that correctly, um, don't have, would like, would love to be able to also monetize that, but they lack the uh, equipment to pulverize it and provide the similar type of product um, to local African markets. And so, you know, there, why aren't there uh, conversations, partnerships happening so that they can get access to that equipment, charge them for it. You can still monetize it, but, but it allows for these farms and these smallholder um, lifestyles to also be able to survive and thrive on a, on a, um, uh, uh, I'm not, a staple good that, you know, thankfully they're getting um, nutrition in the form of the seeds from the tree rather than pulverizing it into powder. So um, that type of collaboration, because we're, we've been so, you know, it's been so patriarchal in the sense of like, there's gotta be competition. You need to have fear and all this money and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, I think 
consciously we are shifting to more more of a, a system that is not that and if we do allow for that there isn't going to be you know the the poverty that we're seeing because you don't have access to a piece of equipment that would have allowed your family to be able to still live in that same village and um, monetize a, a, a tree or a plentiful crop could be moringa um, for your survival. I love how you said that. So there's a couple of things in there I totally agree with. And I love that it was just a recent conversation that you had. Um, one, you're, you're talking about local economies, local empowerment of people with with production, manufacturing equipment. And it's kind of almost like re-community, re-city, uh, because you're bringing manufacturing back, you're empowering the locals, instead of someone from Germany or um, uh, the United States coming in, the rich businesses coming in with their tools and manufacturing. Why don't we empower the locals with the knowledge and the tools to do that instead of us exploiting their their crops. And so what you do is you not only empower the people and the majority of the farmers around the world are women and girls. And so, uh, uh, and maybe the landowners are, are male, but those who do the work and really are the farmers and, and the, the, the laborers, the workers are women and girls. Let's empower them with the education, the tools, the manufacturing, the equipment to do that. We're building local economies. We're strengthening the infrastructure. We're strengthening the community. We're educating them to, to get out and change that situation, uh, which then in turn stimulates the economy, which then in turn feeds our communities better, That which in turn takes better care of the environment, is more sustainable. So I love that aspect as well and and we're really seeing this emergence of building um community food webs um, um keeping things more local uh and i think it's different than nationalism i think it's different than uh separating ourselves uh, i think it's we take care of our families our communities our cities first and then the more abundance we have, the better it goes, the better that infrastructure is. Of course, we will share with other cities and other countries. And, and then as there's excess and, and, and get into a different type of a, of a model that's more ecological economics so that we can have that biodiversity of, of different plant types and nutrition types, because I love Thai food. I love food from Italy and, and Africa and, and food from Brazil. Uh, I love that diversity. Um, and yeah, sometimes it has to be a luxury that you only, you don't have it every day. It's, it, it's a little rare, but that we need that back, but we also at the same time need to strengthen those local economies and those, those people to, to, to not say, oh, that's the Unilevers, the Monsantos or the buyers or the, Gills or whoever it is coming in and they're just taking over and and we don't get anything back uh, uh, out of it. So thank you for that answer. And I love it. That was probably the best answer I've ever had to that question. The last three questions are for my listeners. They're uh, uh, kind of selfish for my listeners. If there was one message you could depart to my listeners as a sustainable takeaway that has the power to change their life, what would it be? your message, and it can even be two messages, it doesn't have to be one. Yeah, you know, I, I think, um, and I've been saying this for a while, I, I just think people really need to be conscious of 
what they're buying and consuming because they really don't realize that you know base supermarkets and and wholesale food suppliers go based on projections so if you're buying at a large amount uh, each month but you really only eat perhaps 75% of that food that you purchased last month you know you're always going to create this residual waste because the markets are ba going based on your receipts right so try to be incredibly minimalistic mindful of you know, being creative with meal planning. Um, but I see that as the lowest hanging fruit for most people. What should young innovators in your field be thinking about if they're looking for ways to make a real impact? Um, you know, I think about the two interns that were, uh, were with us this summer. I, I, I think people just have to be a consumer in the sense of information. And the reason why I say that is because when I started thinking about renewable, I was, I am, I'm like an information hog. I love looking at where things are and then just seeing what kind of patterns are happening. And you can only really do that by just consuming a lot of information. So, you know, try to be less into, you know, my personal thought is like on the social media, um, depending on what social media, um, but really just having a very kind of macro level view because your life doesn't have to be linear. Um, you can make the career and life that you want, but it really comes down to what you know. And, um, you know, it, it can only be possible if you really kind of take ownership of trying to know as much as possible and, and creating that ultimate job or career that you're, you hopefully want. What have you experienced or learned in this professional journey of yours so far that you would have loved to know from the start? That's a good question. Um, I wish that, so agriculture and technology as an agriculture, especially for open field or soil, uh, it's incredibly hard to get off the ground um, because you usually need three years or more. So that didn't really impede us, but I didn't realize that like, you know, agriculture or ag tech, if you want to call it, um, just has such a long time frame to test, iterate, and then fully say it's ready for or are ready for commercialization. And so knowing that time frame and how long, you know, like we would have a, a formulation, um, but then you can't go based on one crop cycle uh, results. You need to grow for at least six months worth. And so um, I would have done things a little bit differently had I, I had that background. Nia, it's been a sheer pleasure. Thank you so much for letting us all inside of your ideas and kind of who you are and renewable. And I really thank you. That's all I have. Uh, and I, I, I really uh, hope that we can have some discussions again in the future, because I know you guys are going to go far and do a lot of wonderful things. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for creating this platform for people to just like share, um, because I, I, I really like the perspective and lens that you kind of raise the question. So I, I appreciate you. Thank you very much. Have a great evening. You too.